0: We're continuing in Romans 9 this morning and we're in the latter half of it. I decided to cut it off at 23 because of the nature of the discussion. I could have fit it all in, but um, Romans 9, it's controversial, it's, it's difficult to, to grasp and so I want to try to leave some time for some discussion as we work our way through this um, to kind of of course, recap the context of how we got here. Uh, this is one of the most controversial chapters in all of Scripture. It deals with a matter of predestination, sovereign election, God's sovereignty in general. And, and as I argued last week, we, we want to make sure we understand the context of how the Apostle got here. He has all throughout the epistle been arguing, um, well, his argument is the gospel, Romans 1.16 is the thesis of the entire book. The Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Um, but along the way, he has entirely challenged the Jewish notion of, of how God saves and even who God saves. And this has raised these larger questions of, well, what are God's purposes for Israel, Paul? You've been saying that it's, it's not because of good works or obedience to the law. It's not because of someone has been circumcised. It's not based upon ethnicity. Uh, these are not the basis upon which one receives God's blessing and mercy and favor. So, so why did God promise all these things to Israel? Why, why did God reveal the worship and the Scriptures to them and, 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 and such? And, and that's the question, the bigger question that He's answering. Um, But as we saw last week, he begins to answer that question before he kind of takes a sidetrack. Maybe not really a sidetrack, but uh, he focuses on God's purposes or or God's sovereignty in part of answering this question. So he begins to, to answer, okay, God's purposes for Israel culminate in Jesus Christ. That's what we saw in the first five verses of the chapter. All these blessings and privileges, the revelation, the covenants, the patriarchal line, were all for one grand purpose, to bring forth the Messiah, uh, to, to point forward, anticipate, and, and bring about the birth of Jesus Christ that He might accomplish our redemption. And then he takes a step back and says, okay, um, but God's purpose is in salvation in general. You've got to understand that as well God is is sovereign in this too, and that's what we saw in verses six through thirteen. He says, "If if you really want to talk about Israel, true Israel, the 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 people of God's favor, um, is not by works. It's it's not by physical uh, ritual circumcision. It's not even it's not by obedience to the law. Um, God's purposes center on." On his sovereign choice of who to love, whom to love. That's the ultimate source of his love and mercy and grace. And so when he goes back and says, Jacob, I love, Esau I hated, here are two twins, born to the same mother, in the same line, raised in the same household, given the same sign of circumcision. And yet, from the very beginning, before they had done anything good or evil, God's purpose is to bless Jacob. And he rejects Esau. And he rejects Esau not on the basis of anything Esau did. He's very explicit in pointing that out. But because that is his sovereign choice. So God's purposes in salvation, Paul is saying, have always been according to his own choice. Not according to our choice. And this, in part explains Israel's unbelief. And of course, it helps us connect the dots and understand our own salvation as well. So that's where we left off. That's like right in the middle of his argument, that he's going to pick back up and we're going to talk about more. Um, but that gives you the context. So, um, I mean, I've, most of you, I, I can't even remember the things I said last week. So, um, <laughs> Maybe this is a superfluous question, but are there any lingering questions uh, from our discussion last week or from the first part of this chapter that I can answer before we begin? I, I did close last week by, by noting, you know, so often we get caught up on the, Esau, I hate it, that doesn't seem fair, that's not right. And, and we forget to marvel at the wonder and beauty of Jacob I love, particularly because, you know, Jacob was a really horrible man. He's the deceiver, manipulator. And yet God set his love upon him. Um We need to make sure we we we, we wonder at the love and not just get caught up on Esau I hated. Any questions? Comments? Glad you guys got this down. Um, th- thank you, Mark. Thank you. All right. <laughs> All right. So let's go to what, to the rest of kind of this discussion in the chapter. Um, I want to say, right, Paul realizes what he just said. He's not a fool. Uh, he realizes that what he says, just said, offends deeply. He realizes that it's hard to understand. He realizes that it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. It seems like God is arbitrary, that He's cruel. That He doesn't give everyone an equal opportunity. He realizes that. So the rest of this chapter that we're going to look at today, he deals with these objections. First one he deals with, is sovereign election unjust? Unjust? Is there injustice in God's actions and God's decrees here? And then he asks, asks the question and deals with, if no one can resist God's sovereign will, then how can he still punish evil? That doesn't seem right. If God chooses who to love and who to hate, how in the world can he still punish those who hate him? And then he seeks to apply this to God's purposes for Israel. And I'm going to say, like I mentioned, save that for next week. Because it goes into chapter 10 anyway, so we will go into chapter 10. Uh, but he comes back around and says, okay, let's apply this now to the Israel situation. All right, let's begin. Read uh, verses 14 through 18. Pick up in 14 where. Here. he picks up in uh, verse 14 continuing the same line of thought and it says what shall we say then remember he just said Jacob I love Esau I hated Jacob I love Esau I hated what shall we say then is there injustice on God's part He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Um, To give you just an outline, if you want to look at it, just big picture of this um, passage, 14 through 18 here. Um, He opens with the objection, is there injustice on God's part? he emphatically says no, and he gives an answer for this from Scripture. Um, He quotes uh, the book of Exodus. But then he turns to a negative illustration, so 15 and 16 is kind of the positive. Verse 17 is the negative, and then he concludes the answer to that objection in verse 18. Uh, Paul is amazingly systematic. He's, He's like a lawyer. He goes through very carefully, and, and presents arguments and answers them, and makes deductions from the Old Testament, and gives supporting evidence and the positive and the negative. Um, he's a very uh, clear thinker, obviously guided by the infallible uh, leading of the Holy Spirit in writing Scripture. Um, but but here's the major objection here, <clears throat> the major objection. If everything depends upon God's purposes in election, verse 11, if God loves Jacob and hates Esau even before they were ever born, even not even viewing whether they would be good people or bad people, irrespective of their, of their heart, of their works, or whatever, it, is that right? Is it unjust? To love Jacob and hate Esau for no reason in them? That's the objection. Um, And, and, you know, we can often cry the same way. That's not fair. I mentioned last week, we talked about this last week. Um, Nothing in life is fair. It's a very foolish objection. Nothing in life is fair. Some people are born rich. some are born poor. Some are born with deformities, some are are born with excellent genes and long life and great health. Some people are born in in countries where they can flourish, some people are born under poverty and tyranny and, 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 you know, nothing in life is fair. Some people are born good looking, some people aren't. Some people are born with with great power, mental powers and, and can accomplish great things and some people are slow, some people have... Deficiencies. Nothing in life is fair. Why, why would we then bring this up when it comes to God's purposes in election, either, and say fair? Well, but that's the objection here. This doesn't seem fair. And if something isn't fair, then it's not right, then it's not just. There is injustice, there's no equality. There's no equal opportunity. Um, And and just thinking about this, I mean, it doesn't it sound most democratic, most fair to us to say that God gives each person the opportunity to choose or reject Christ? It feels right to us. But, But again, it's a foolish question. You know, we are born, we live in the Bible belt. As I mentioned last week, we can go to any corner store and get the scriptures, a copy of the scriptures. We have, most of us probably have high-speed internet access in our home, on our phone, anywhere we go. And you compare that to somebody living in a, in a third world country or in a Muslim country. and they, they may never hear the gospel. They may never read a copy of the scriptures. They may never even hear the name Jesus Christ. And you, it, nothing is fair. But the question, is God fair? It sounds democratic, but is, is that a legitimate question? Is God fair? <coughs> That's the objection that Paul's dealing with. If God, though, truly did give everyone the ability to choose, I, I do want to ask you, why would Paul answer the charge raised here that God is unjust? The reason I say this is because some people trying to get around this chapter and what it says so obviously try to make the argument that that Paul's not talking about individual salvation. He's talking about nations. Paul is, is not talking about predestination in election. He's just talking about God's purposes for these Big bodies of people. Nations. Um, But uh, Paul's raising the objection and answering it right there proves that he knows what he's saying. He knows that he has just said God does not give everyone an equal opportunity to choose Christ and live. That's why he answers the charge. And I do want to say, you know, we tend to think, oh, this is a major issue in our day, but imagine how this sounded to Paul's original audience, the Jews. These were God's chosen people. They were given all of the things in verse, verses 1-5, through five, the, the covenants, the worship, the revelation, the patriarchs. And he is saying here, even among this group, God only shows mercy on those whom he has chosen to show mercy. To them, it, it was far more offensive than it is even in our day. In our, and again, we talked about this last week. In America, we have trouble wrapping our minds around this because um, we live in a democratic republic. We, we, we resist the sovereignty of the king. That kind of goes back to the founding of our country. We don't know what it's like to live under a sovereign. There's something in American, just, just American nature, that is hostile uh, to authority. We believe in the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the equality of all people. So, it's not just an issue in our day. It was a major issue back then. But the question, is God fair? And the point, though, that I want to argue, that Paul argues, is to say that mercy is unfair is really to say that mercy is, is owed. It's owed to all, if you think about it. Um, to, to break this down a little bit, and again, he's, he's answering this objection. Um, earlier he had pilled to the patriarchs, Jacob and Esau, But now he turns to Israel's history in Exodus. And in verse 15 here, where he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. um, This is, you know, remember when God, uh, Moses told, uh, Moses asked God, show me your glory. Uh, I want to see you. And uh, God says to Moses, you can't see me and live. Uh, But Moses was insistent. So God said, "Okay, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. And I'm going to put my hand over you and I'm going to pass by you. And then after I'm passed, I will, I will remove my hand and you can kind of see the back part of me. Um, but if you remember, what, what was amazing about that passage, about God revealing himself um, to Moses there, uh, what was so amazing about it is not what Moses saw, but what Moses heard. Because when the goodness of God passed by him, the Lord proclaimed, he, he said, he spoke, because that's how he reveals himself. And it's that famous, beautiful, you know, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faith, faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, and he goes on from there. Well, this is the section that Paul quotes. And what I want you to see, the key that Paul answers here, is he appeals, in this quotation, he's appealing to God's nature. Why do you think that's important? Because He never changes. Yes, God's immutable. He's not subject to change. Why is that important in regards to this discussion though? Let me ask you this way. Is mercy grounded in God's actions or in God's being? Amen. Yes. God's mercy is grounded in God's being. Maybe to put it to brass tacks. Bring it down to brass tacks. Why do we have hope that He will love us and show mercy to us tomorrow? Because it's an aspect of His being. I, the Lord, do not change, He tells Israel. Therefore, you are not consumed. You see, if Paul appeals simply to God's actions, he that lays open the the possibility or the thought of God being arbitrary. He's just showing mercy to Jacob and non-mercy, hatred to Esau because he just decided so on a whim. But this answers that charge. His his actions are grounded in his being. We don't look simply to to what he does and what he doesn't do, we look to who he is. And if we don't look to who he is, then 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 the ground of our confidence, our hope for tomorrow, is 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 subject, um, is subject to doubt. Dick.
1: Justice and mercy seem like the opposite sides of the coin. One justice is. Deserved mercy is undeserved. I wrestle with this all the time. Yeah. And so, so justice is we know universal, absolute. Mercy is not universal, not absolute. Opposites. Opposites. Yes. And yet God possesses both justice and mercy, and these two—what are they are called on? The land? Whatever now you want to give to them, they're opposites. Yes.
0: Yes. And so you
1: got this, these opposites in an immutable God. Yes. Then,
0: that is a, a conundrum, but it goes back to the fact, and I'm going to mention this in a moment, that God ultimately is um, incomprehensible and infinite. And That there are secrets that we will about God, for lack of a better term, that we will never know. But that's what Paul appeals to in a minute, because he's going to say, "Who are you? You you know, will the will the clay talk back to the potter?" Um, He he goes back to that and reminds the objector, "You're not God." And and that's where that you're right that that there's the tension there. Go ahead. Yep. Yep.
1: So again, the
0: incomprehensibility of God. Yep. I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, that's exactly what I was going to say uh, uh, as well. Um, the same answer that Paul gives here is the same answer that God gives Job. Ultimately, at the end of the book. So I, I do want you to see that understanding who God is, as we studied last summer. Understanding his being is critical to understanding his his actions. And and the being of God is the ground of our confidence. Uh, But let's parse this out a little bit more. Uh, The greater point is that it's not injustice with God because God's very nature is justice itself, as Dick just said. God is just. He's incapable of an unjust action. And so that's what Paul is kind of appealing to here. Don't you go back and remember the nature of God? Go back and remember who He is as revealed in the Old Testament. And if you remember who it is that is revealed in the Old Testament, you know then that there can't be any justice with God. And you know then the conclusion here in Romans 9... the conclusion of his argument of answer in that objection, because of who God is, then, in verse 16, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's the conclusion. Is there injustice on God's part? No. Remember who God is. And if you remember who God is, then you know that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And think about verse 16 here. God's mercy, whether to show love or hatred, blessing or curse, depends not on human will or decisions. Our choices. It depends not on human will. What we want. What we decide. What we try to do in our own strength and power. Same thing. Human exertion. Not on human will. Not on human exertion. Our strivings. Our workings. Our effort. I mean, this is, this is comprehensive will, a desire, and work, what you try to bring about with your own hands. He's saying God's mercy does not depend upon those things, but upon God who has mercy. He is sovereign over mercy and compassion and blessing. He is ultimately the first, the ultimate, cause behind those things. You would think here, if you think about this verse, um, it's one of those verses kind of like a few statements that Jesus makes in John chapter 6, 37 through 44 particularly. But you would think that this would kind of end the debate, wouldn't you? (laughs) I mean, I, I don't want to be condescending here. I don't intend to, but he just said, Blessing. And mercy depend upon God and not on what you want or what you do. There is no free will in the sense that we often think about it. He says so. I don't think it could be any clearer. Right? I mean, do you disagree? Excuse me? That's faith? Yeah, to believe that everything depends on God. Yeah. 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 Absolutely, it is. Absolutely, it is. It is placing your confidence and your trust not in yourself, but in God who has mercy. I appeal to your mercy, I appeal to your grace. Absolutely. Absolutely. My yep. There's no injustice with God. Yep. Yep. In Christ, justice and mercy. They do. At the cross ultimately. God became the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Um, but the nail is down. He moves now to a negative example. If you, if you follow the, the, the argument, he's emphasized mercy, he's emphasized blessing. But now he's like, okay, well, well what about the negative side of that? Condemnation, punishment. He moves to Pharaoh. He says in verse uh, 17, 18, this is what the scripture says. This isn't just me. Go back and read your Old Testament. For this very purpose, I've raised you up. What purpose? Why did God raise up this man to be Pharaoh over Egypt at the time when Israel was in bondage? Because God said that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And the conclusion is, of course, then where we're talking about mercy, whether we're talking about hardening, leading to condemnation. It is God who is ultimately sovereign over this. He cites Exodus again. He gave Pharaoh his position for his own purpose. He hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he wouldn't let Israel go. Again, if you read the story, when before even Moses gets to, to Egypt, in, in Exodus chapter 4, God tells him, uh, Moses, I'm going to go send you to deliver the people, but I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he doesn't. Just FYI. I'm sending you on a mission where you are going to fail. And I've determined that you're going to fail. Why did he do that? Well, because if Moses goes and says, let my people go, and Pharaoh says, all right, um, God doesn't receive the glory. But, but God orchestrated things so that Pharaoh resisted with all of his might, with all of his power, with all of his money, with all of his armies, so that it would be clear to all the world that the only reason that Israel was free from bondage was because God Brought it about, and it's of course the Exodus is a is a is a metaphor of our own salvation. We are in bondage to the greater Pharaoh, sin, Adam. We are in slavery to sin, and when we are redeemed, God has so orchestrated things so that He receives the glory, so that we can't say, "I chose," I, I you know, I came to my senses. I made the right call, I joined the right team, I did the right work. We can't take credit for our own redemption. But Paul, dealing with the negative side is just like with Esau. He was a recipient of God's uh, justice and not His mercy. And there's no injustice in that. Um, Key here, um, when we talk about hardening, uh, I want to make the argument that when God hardens, He doesn't create that hardness. He simply pulls back restraining grace. But pulling back restraining grace is a way in which He hardens their heart. Does that make sense? Um, Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. Uh, The world fell into sin, but God put a limit, a restraint upon it. And this world would be complete chaos and hell, hell if He did not do so. But the moment He draws back His restraining influence at any point, there is a hardening there. So that is one of the ways in which God produces hardening. He leaves them to themselves. And that's why if you read the account of the Exodus, you have, I don't know, maybe... A dozen statements of God saying, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But you also have these few statements where it says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It's a both and. God doesn't have to go in and actively create hardening. It's already there. Pharaoh's a sinner. All he has to do is pull back his restraining grace. Romans chapter 1, leaving men to themselves as the ultimate form of condemnation and judgment. Leaving us to ourselves. Because when he leaves us to ourselves, we're going to destroy ourselves. That's the nature of sin. So, again, Paul's point going back to the verse, Pharaoh is an example, a negative example, of how God doesn't have to create evil, he just has to. Let sin do its work. And he does that at times to display his own glory. So, uh, the conclusion here, we've got to move quickly. God has mercy on whom he uh, wills. He hardens whom he wills. Mercy that is deserved or demanded is not mercy. Like grace. Grace that everybody has equally, it's not grace. You've just undermined what the word means. We can't demand mercy. We can't say everyone is is an equal recipient of mercy. Otherwise, it's really not mercy. And I think if we step back in the big picture and we remember that no one seeks God, that no one does good, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.10 and following, God's not under an obligation to save anyone, considering how sinful and rebellious men are against Him. And if we really want fairness, if we, if we want to answer that question and say, God, I demand fairness, then fairness is we all get condemnation. What should amaze us in this is that God shows mercy at all. Um, i got to move quickly, so... Let's, let's, um, let's jump into this next section so that we can finish it. It's part of the same thought. Um, 19 through 23, another objection. Okay, Paul. Why does God find fault? Who can resist God's will? Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will the molder say, molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make His power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He's prepared beforehand for glory? Another objection here. Okay, okay. Salvation doesn't depend upon genealogical descent or good works of circumcision. God's sovereignty over showing mercy is not injustice. So the objection objection is, well, if God hardens whomever he wills, how does he still find fault with us? How and why does he still condemn sin and unbelief if no one can resist God's will? You understand that, right? If God is sovereign over mercy and only shows it to those whom He loves, how can He fault, blame the people who don't respond to Him in love and obedience? Because nobody can resist God's sovereign will. That's the objection. And, and that's where he goes to the Potter and the Clay analogy. He appeals to the fact that God is Creator. And thus he has rights of ownership over his creation. Um, Think of uh, an illustration here, you know, (laughs) parents sometimes say no. Well, why, mom? Why, dad? And sometimes our only answer is because I said so. I'm the parent, you're not. There's, you know, you don't have equal rights here. That's what Paul is saying. You didn't create yourself. You don't sustain yourself. You're not sovereign over yourself. Uh, so he's appealing to the creature, excuse me, creator, creature, distinction. And um, so when we think about vessels of uh, destruction here in this respect, as God creator, He creates some for honor and some for dishonor. Clay pots. He creates vessels of mercy to show His glory. And He endures vessels of destruction to show His wrath. And I want you to think about that. I mean, did you catch the difference in that? In fact, well, I'm guessing that none of you are looking at it in the original language. Maybe Chandler is. But um, he says... If you think about, or if you look at, Endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And you contrast that with verse 23, Vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. There's a change in the verb tense. God is very clearly the author of preparing beforehand glory. But prepared for destruction is, is neuter, it's passive. There is a difference in this. And, and it's key, and I'm going to bring this up, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go there. Um, We've we got to answer the question, is God the author of evil? And I want to argue that we, we also, we'll always have to hold intention, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And by mean human responsibility, I don't mean free will, as we often use it and think about it but the fact that we are responsible for our actions. Uh, I want to make our I mean, Scripture does not say that God makes people evil. It's very key here. Um, and this is part of a larger debate. Um, it's called supralapsarianism versus infralapsarianism. And I'm not going to dive into this, but I just want to introduce it to you because uh, I do believe it's important. Um, supra, it's Latin, it means above or, or before. Infra is after. So, uh, the fall, lapsarianism, lapse is the fall. Um, To contrast these things, superlapsarianism is the view that God, as a potter, acts in view of forming these vessels. He acts in view of an innocent human race. God's a potter, and there's this lump of clay. And as He begins to form this lump of clay, He's looking at the lump of clay as humanity, apart from sin, innocent. And so, from that innocent lump, he creates vessels of mercy, and he creates vessels of wrath. Uh, But infra is different. God the potter, as he's looking at the clay, acts in view of humanity as fallen. He has the fall in mind as he's looking at this lump of clay. And so, it's from this fallen lump of clay that he chooses to save some, and the others he leaves to their own destruction. Despite what you might hear often nowadays, infra is a confessional and reformed position. Um, There is no reformed confession that, that, that argues for superlapsarianism. And I would argue our confession and the changes we made from the Westminster make this even more explicitly clear than the original Westminster divines did. And this is important. I believe Infra is very important in in upholding the goodness of creation and the fact that God is not the author of evil. God doesn't create evil. He doesn't create vessels of destruction. He creates vessels of mercy out of a larger lump of vessels of destruction and He leaves those vessels of destruction to themselves and he uses them for his own purposes. Um, to quote John Stott here, if anybody is lost, the blame is theirs, but if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. The Saint contains a mystery which our present knowledge cannot solve, but it is consistent with scripture, history, and experience. If you want to read more about this, Look at our Confession, chapters 3, chapter 9, chapter 10. All right, so Dick. So here's the mystery again.
1: It's so difficult. God is not the author of evil. So the question is, who is the author?
0: Um, ultimately, the best answer that we can give is that well, evil is the absence of good. It's the absence of God, ultimately. And I don't know if we can look at evil and say that it was created as if it's you know, something just out there in the universe floating around. But that the absence of God Itself is kind of the, the seminal moment of, of evil. And so, I think it's the best way that we can answer it. And that's not really an answer, but it's the best way our minds can kind of comprehend it. Uh, that God pulling back in itself um, is the creation of evil. Grace? Absolutely, I agree with that I agree with that. And, and some it's somewhat of a mystery, but uh, in some sense that helps us kind of grasp and understand. Doug.
1: Yeah, I know John Gerstner said, yeah. like, did God create darkness, or is it just the absence of light? Yeah. I I mean, yeah. He created light. Yeah. He said he created darkness. Yeah. Darkness is the absence of it, and we can think of that as sin
0: or yep. evil food, or good. Yep. Everything yep. he created is good. Absolutely. And and that's that's very helpful. Otherwise, you're going to start going down that path that God specifically created evil. Because ultimately, He is the first cause of everything. Um, uh, But Scripture is very emphatic that He did not. That it did not arise from the heart of God, from the being of God. All right. We have one minute, so I'm just going to conclude. All right. Conclusion, if we just kind of take a step back. God is purposeful, and this is a point I want to, I'm sorry, this is a point, this is a conclusion on the the last thing we just considered right here with this potter and the clay. And I think it's helpful to understand it. God is purposeful and active in redemption and showing mercy in a way that he isn't in the vessels of destruction. He is active in redemption. He is passive in redem- uh, damnation. We, we, we damn ourselves. Excuse the term, but damnation. We, we condemn ourselves. He doesn't need to do anything. We're going to go that way anyway. But He's active in redemption. Nevertheless, he's sovereign over both, and he uses both to display his glory. And, and that's Paul's greater argument here. Everything he does is for his glory. Whether you're Jacob or Esau, whether you're Pharaoh or Moses, whether you're, you're, you're Hitler or you know, you're Billy Graham, off the top of my head. Everything that he does is for his own glory. And ultimately, Paul doesn't answer the objection in verse 18. How does he still find fault? Who resists God's will? He never answers it. He just says, Who are you? He rebukes the interrogator for failing to recognize the creature-creator distinction. And so, the conclusion on this whole pericope then. Um, The bigger question, what are God's purposes for Israel? Well, well, God's purposes in election reign supreme over all. Don't you know that? Everything God does is just. Don't miss that. He's incapable of injustice. Mercy isn't demanded or deserved. Otherwise, it's not mercy. Mercy is grounded in God's being, not just in His actions. The creature-creator distinction is important because God is incomprehensible and infinite. Don't forget that, Paul says. He predestines some, he leaves others to show his glory, especially in redemption, so that he might receive the glory. And everything then depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. We've got this long quote from Spurgeon. Um, I will close with this because we've got to end right now. No discussion, unfortunately. But to summarize first 23 verses, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings, no truth of which they have made such a football as the great, stupendous, but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on His throne. They will allow Him to be in the workshop to fashion worlds and make stars. They will allow Him to be in His almonry to dispense His alms and bestow His bounties. They will allow Him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof or light the lamps of heaven or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends to His throne, His creatures then gnash their teeth. And we proclaim and enthrone God and His right to do as He wills with His own, to dispose of His creatures as He thinks well, without consulting them in the matter. Then it is that we are hissed and excretated. And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us for God on his throne is not the God they love but is God upon the throne that we love to preach it is God upon this throne whom we must trust amen let's pray